0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
2: This is Troy Angel, and you are listening
3: to Revived Thoughts. May all your free time be given to this double contemplation. Like the saint who prayed, God, may I know myself, may I know you.
4: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. We got another old one for you guys today, going back to the 12th century in the kingdom of France to listen to a sermon by Bernard of Clairvaux. Troy, tell me a little bit about this man.
2: Man, Bernard of Clairvaux is actually a huge deal. Honestly, we are not able to cover all the things uh, in this episode that I wish we could, because the, if we went through everything he did in life, it would be a very long uh, episode, and we wouldn't even have time for the sermon. Now, I will say, some of you are listening, we have listeners, oh, man, we have new listeners coming in and all that stuff, and we have li- we've tried to do episodes. The hardest era to get episodes from is not like the old mm-hmm. ones, actually. There are a lot of great uh, church fathers. Chrysostom is coming up again. Uh, Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory the Great. And we have all these great guys from kind of the early days, Augustine, uh, but there's kind of like a break that happens around the 7th century, around the 600s, and we don't really get to like see anybody again until the 1500s and there are a few people to choose from that era that 600 years but there's not that many people writing their sermons down. And then there's not that many people that are like, those are really trustworthy people that I would feel good to have them on the show. <laughs> there's just a bunch of problems in that era. And we
4: try That's to That's why they call it people... the dark ages is because yeah. it's a dark point in our <laughs> church history yeah. archive sermon.
2: And to some degree, kind of, I mean, yes. And there are gonna be people who go, hey, wait a second. Don't call them the evil era, the dark ages. I, I completely agree with you. And if you're trying to run a good church history podcast, it is difficult to pull from that era because they like to drop random you know, prayers to Mary in the middle of their uh, sermons and a bunch of stuff like that that makes it very difficult to find this stuff. And also, they weren't good at holding on to their sermons. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's really difficult to find good sermons. Uh, this is actually a super, super, super sidebar, but I actually messaged a group called like the Medieval era study people and they were like all about medieval sermons and i was like oh hey you know i'd love to work with you guys and this woman was like we'd love to have a sermon or two send your way and then she sent it to her like her president and her president was like actually christians are killer horrible people and this is a horrible era and we're not going to ever send you a sermon (laughs) and i was like well, why do you run the society of studying like old sermons in the medieval era if you don't like them anyway? So that's yeah, the kind like, of stuff. It was we're like up purely
4: against. a a historical thing. They 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 yeah. didn't want to promote anything <laughs> anything yeah. that anyone was saying. And she was like
2: offended at the idea that a Christian would want to like bring some of those sermons back. So that's the kind of stuff we're up against in this era. It's not always easy. But in this case of Bernard of Clairvaux, if you if you do have worries, I will say both Luther and John Calvin specifically mentioned that. Bernard of Clairvaux, they see him as like an early reformer, as like a proto-reformer, as a guy who is a big inspiration to all of them, that the stuff that he was trying to do, if it had been successful, would have maybe helped redirect the Catholic Church from the direction it ends up going. And they also view him as just a guy who really loved God. And I think that you'll see that as you go through his life, too.
4: Yeah, so I mean 1100. So this is this is before reformation. This is before I mean this is this is uh, your crusaders era, right? You got the push and pull for the fight over Jerusalem in Europe. That's this era. This is pre the black death, the black plague, you know? So this is before any of that stuff. So it's it's a chunk of time before that, but you know, as Troy mentioned, the work that he does and and the way that uh, he looks at the Bible will influence generations to come. Uh, All the way to us, you know, almost a thousand years later, looking back on it. He was born in the area of Burgundy, which is a part in eastern France. I don't know what came first, whether it was the color Burgundy or the location Burgundy. (laughs) I don't know. Probably the location. And we know that he was born there because he is a nobility. He's part of a noble family. And that's always helpful for us because they actually have a paper trail. They have somewhat of uh, a documented lineage of when and where and in what your life was like a little bit there. He had several brothers. His father probably most likely served in the Crusades. He was one of the guys that was storming Jerusalem. Again, we don't know for certainty, but that lines up with what he would have been he would have been doing. And he survived it from all accounts. You know, he's he's there back home after the Crusades. His mother would eventually die when he was about 22 years old, and uh, Bernard himself would join a local abbey to become a priest. And uh, the unique thing is that he, he brought about 30 other guys with him, so he, he had a, he had quite the friend group. He had quite the, the posse to roll in and be like, hey, everybody, let's go join the abbey. And uh, to convince, uh, I guess, at least 30 of his friends to do so, it kind of shows you just little little bits like that. We don't know what those conversations were like or why, but you can tell he's a leader. You know, not... Not, uh, not very many people can convince 30 of their friends to do something. I
2: mean, imagine you're, you're filling out your application for Bible college, and you're like, and by the way, here are my 30 buds coming with me. We're all doing yeah. this together. Like, Let's that go. would be something that people would notice, because that's not very common.
4: Yeah, and they didn't just pick a normal monastery either. They picked a, a, a newer one, specifically, that was dedicated to living devout, holy lives as opposed, I, mean, I wouldn't say as opposed, but a lot of the monasteries at this time were very into the monastic living, right? Your mo- classic monk style living, whereas this one seemed a little bit more active uh, as far as uh, interaction and, and how to portray yourself in a holy way. So um, kind of a, a shift in a lot of how uh, monasteries were being functioned at that time
2: bernard is a i'm um, a multifaceted individual he's got a lot going on he was involved in so many things for starters uh he was a hymn writer he's like one of the many wonderful people we've had on the show many 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 of the greats of the past wrote music uh they were involved in art and that he wrote hymns the hymns that i on the websites i was looking at i i didn't know them and when i tried to look up his hymn list it was huge and i didn't recognize a lot of them so who knows you might have a bernard of clairvaux favorite i was not able to discern that in my time. Um uh, it wasn't wasn't one that it, he's not he's not writing Amazing Grace. That's so it's not one of like the top uh famous hymns that off the top of my head I recognized. He also practiced a severe form of self-discipline. He believed the pleasures of this world were there to distract you from God. And so he would go without food or drink or sleep, things like that to draw himself closer to God. But he did this so regularly and he was so severe, he ended up giving himself actual medical conditions where he was sick and like organs weren't working the way they were supposed to because he had so damaged them from his times of severe, you know, fasting or whatever you call that. Ironically, he also was like, hey, this doesn't just apply to how I live my life, you know, my physical body. We need to be not so obsessed with what's happening in the world. Don't be so obsessed with like world news or politics and stuff like that. But we need to be just always thinking about God and heaven. But what's kind of ironic about that is he was very outspoken about the politics and news of the day kind of issues for that time. For example, in the year 1130, the pope at that time died. Two people were kind of declared pope at the same time. And through some internal politicking, uh, one pope was, you know, kind of took over Rome and the other pope was kind of, you know, exiled out. Bernard was absolutely convinced that the guy who was exiled out was supposed to be the Pope and that the other guy was basically using bribes to make himself the Pope. And that did not sit well with Bernard at all. So Bernard starts walking back and forth across the area, hundreds of miles to get princes and families and people to agree to send money and uh, you know, do, kind of all that kind of. I'm sure, I mean, this is, this is politics, right? there's a backhand deals and stuff, but what are we going to do to get the right pope in back where he needs to be? Eventually, he secures enough people to get an army. They march on Rome and uh, they're, they siege Rome for a while, but they're not able to quite break the the Pope's fortress down. And so they kind of have to retreat and then they hold a giant council council down in uh, Southern Italy. And there they are kind of declaring this new Pope. This is, I mean, this is like a nine year thing where Bernard is just going through life, trying to do everything he can to get the right guy of Pope finally the schism ends when the wrong guy just dies i think of old age i don't think i don't think i didn't read enough to see it was anything nefarious he dies this group that elected the bad pope elect another bad pope but this new guy is like hey what what do i need to do bernard and bernard kind of sits him down and figures out how to get rid of him and finally the guy that bernard wanted to be pope after nine years is declared you know the pope and they're like okay we got the right pope in the right place where we needed to be. And Bernard goes back to his very little monastery, the little one that he'd always been a part of. And that's kind of back to where he was. So uh, that was just one example. We're about to look at another. but And, and this is not the last time... In fact, this is a precursor to a much tougher time, but this is not the last time the Catholic Church will have problem getting the right pope or at least the person they think is the right pope on uh, on, on the throne. It's not the throne. Whatever the pope sits
4: on. <laughs> the pope throne. Okay. Um. So Bernard interacts with popes a lot. Uh, in fact, later in life, one of his students... Uh, one of the students would end up becoming the pope. And pope Eugenius was his name and this guy he wanted another crusade, He declared a second crusade that you know the first one was really popular, it was a big success, we took back Jerusalem. However, uh, the second crusade did not end up faring as as well. It was not nearly as popular and uh, Pope Eugenius complained and and tried to get Bernard to rally people towards his cause, rally you know, get people interested in this crusade get people uh, fired up to to go on this second crusade again and he did so bernard did so he he, and he he was good at it he got people fired up a lot of people joined the cause and they went off the crusade went terribly it was, it was it was a bad idea from the get-go so the pope's reputation was really hit by that and bernard's reputation was really hit for that he uh you know he was the face of that movement and for for a lot of people a lot of cities um, and now uh, he ends up looking looking pretty bad due, just due to the, how unpopular that crusade ended up being.
2: Now, Bernard had other stuff going on, too. For example, he is the guy who pushed for the founding of what is called the Knights Templar. And he even wrote the first draft of kind of like their the rules and the order and stuff like that. Uh, I don't know a ton about the Knights Templar. And I did not... I did not have the time to put the research into this episode without making this episode ridiculously long. But if you want to learn about that, maybe maybe we'll have a future Bernard of Clairvaux episode, but we may we'll talk about that more. But so that's just something that I, I feel like a lot of people have heard of the Knights Templar. And so I thought it was interesting that this guy, this this you know monk who was very busy with popes and stuff like that, was the guy who pushed them through. He also wrote books and was involved in different scholarly pursuits, but he considered himself a little bit, he was considered more on the mystical side than uh, maybe some of the logical people we've had on before in this era, like Aquinas and Anselm. Now, when we hear the word mystical, we kind of think of, you know, people like sitting on a mountaintop muttering and having dreams or you know that kind of stuff that's not really what he saw it as but he believed that experiencing God was very very important he 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 read books he was very intelligent he was all about that thinking about God but he was like it's more important that you experience and you feel him and you you have walked with him and that he is reflective of your life in that way and so he really emphasized having like an experience of a conversion and walking with God and feeling that closeness to him and, and knowing him in that way He never would have have uttered really the phrase sola fide or sola scriptura. But based on statements he did make, it's pretty clear he, he definitely believed Jesus Christ was the way to heaven. And he definitely believed that everything we have is built on the word of God. And he emphasized that without ever using those, you know, much later reformational phrases.
0: What's the easiest choice you can make?
2: Uh, Bernard was a Catholic in the 12th century, so he did also do things that Catholics did in that time. For example, way overemphasized Mary, um, and he actually was supportive of indulgences. So there's not everything about him. It's not like, oh, he's the greatest guy ever. There were flaws here throughout his life. Yet most Protestants and Reformers really looked up to Bernard because Bernard believed in living a holy life, and he believed in following God. He believed that Scripture was the way to do it, and he believed in calling out the Catholic Church's excesses, calling out popes, doing what needed to be done, and telling people, look, you're not above God. The church needs to live as a vessel for God. And that's not what we're doing. And so we need to get things back on pace. And he also was responsible for planting many, many, many monasteries and churches and people and saying, hey, go and start a church there. Go and start a church there. Go and start a church there. They need help. And so he was big on emphasizing getting the word of God to people, getting churches to people, and big on getting people to really calling the church to live like you are holy and like you are sent by God. For these reasons, he is often seen as a precursor figure to the Reformation, and the people of the Reformation, the people who came after, really appreciate the work that Bernard did.
3: Brothers, by our shared salvation, I beg you to take up with eagerness the opportunity that is given to you to work out your salvation. I beg you, act according to your purpose, by that mercy for which you have worked to make yourself so lowly. For it is that reason for which you have come up from the rivers of Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, says the prophet, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Here at the monastery you have no worry about children to feed or worries about pleasing a wife. There is no need to think about business transactions, or worldly affairs, or even about food or clothing. The greater part of today's evils and the cares of this life are truly far from you. God has hidden you in the secret part of his tabernacle. Therefore, my most beloved brothers, be still and see that it is God himself. In order for you to be truly capable of this, you must first look to yourself in order to see what you are, And, according to the voice of the same prophet, let the nations know they are but mortals. May all your free time be given to this double contemplation, like the saint who prayed, God, may I know myself, may I know you. For how can one even seem to truly know oneself who has fled toil and pain? Or how does one know oneself as a person if they are unprepared for life's purpose? A human being, says Job, is born to suffer. For only someone not born in pain would doubt that he was born for pain. But the cry of the mother in labor and the weeping and whimpering of the newborn both express pain. For you look upon our toil and pain, says the prophet. Toil is in our work. Pain is in our suffering. Therefore, those who know their humanity are prepared for both. Like the prophet who on his knees prayed, My heart is ready, O God, my heart is ready. And he more explicitly expresses this double preparation regarding his action. I am ready, he says, and I am not troubled, so that I may keep your commands. And about suffering, he says, in fact, I am ready for scourges, and my pain is always before me. To be sure, let no one boast about having avoided that double trouble in this wretched life. Certainly, no one among the children of Adam lives here without toil, no one without pain. There may be a few who avoid some sorrow, but they will actually fall into more serious trouble. They share not the toils of men, says the psalmist, and nor will they be scourged among the other people. You see, they are not always free from toils and scourges. Therefore, the psalmist goes on, pride holds them, and pride is a heavy toil indeed. They are covered by their injustice and their wickedness. Clearly, these are heavy scourges, since there is no joy for the wicked, says the Lord. Although they do not feel the anxiety of toil or the wounds of scourging, yet their insensibility itself reveals the depth of their suffering. The poor person sweats while working outdoors, but indoors, do you think the rich person toils any less with anxiety? The poor person yawns, weary with toil, while the rich man opens his mouth to belch. Sometimes a rich person is more gravely tormented by disgust than the poor is by hunger. Finally, whether they wish it or not, both human beings and demons work and suffer as the Most High ordains. And moreover, neither an obedient leper nor a patient dog is to be commended. Therefore, we do not merely pray that the Lord's will be done, for certainly everything that happens depends on God's will, for who can resist his will? But we pray his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This, of course, I believe is aptly applied to the two previous petitions as well. As we ask our Father in heaven, we pray that his name be hallowed, and that both his kingdom come and his will be done. We pray that just as his will and kingdom are in heaven, so also they may be on earth. In any case, where would his name not be hallowed? Where now does his kingdom not come, seeing how in the name of Jesus every knee bends? That is, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth? Indeed, the evil one himself says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. On the other hand, With a very different sentiment is God's name hallowed in heaven, where with most joyous pleasure, angels shout, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. So also God reigns not on earth alone. In fact, he even reigns in hell, having the power of life and death. But how very differently does he reign over these demons who obey him unwillingly, as opposed to those who serve voluntarily? Obedience is the good food about which the Lord himself says, My food is to do the will of my Father. And the prophet says, For you will eat the labors of your hands, you are blessed, and it will be well with you. The good food is the patience of the poor, which will not perish in the end. A bread of tears, a bread of sorrows. Nevertheless, a seasoning is necessary for both without which bread is neither tasty nor sustaining and may even cause death. Of course, both of these foods are hard to swallow, brothers, and unless some third flavoring is added, then for each death is in the pot. Truly, what is more flavorful than wisdom? Wisdom, indeed, is the tree of life that, through Moses, sweetened the waters of Marah. It is the fine flower that, through Elijah, Made the prophet's stew edible. It is the fire that God commands to be burned on the altar at all times. It is the oil for lack of which the door of the wedding was closed to the foolish virgins. Wisdom is the salt that by divine command no sacrifice should be without. That is why we sometimes say that dull people are tasteless. The Lord bids us to have salt among us. And the apostle also advises us to season all of our speech with salt. And so I believe, however, that our third ingredient, wisdom, which we need to add to obedience and patience, likewise has a threefold nature. Our seasoning consists of three particular herbs. For there needs to be justice in our purpose, joy in our attitude, and humility in our considerations. Insipid to God and unsalted, so to speak is all of our obedience, and even our patience, unless God himself is the final cause of everything that we do and suffer. For whatever we do, we are commanded to do for the glory of God. And we are blessed not just because we suffer, but only when we suffer for the sake of justice. It is also necessary, moreover, to guard against cowardice and sadness in everything that we do. And in everything that we endure, because God loves a cheerful giver. Furthermore, we know that cheerfulness itself and a conscious devotion to cheerfulness pertain especially to the preparation which we spoke above. Finally, one must avoid haughtiness above all. For if anyone is arrogant, then both that person's work and his patience will taste of emptiness, the kind of emptiness that is most dire and most opposite to the truth. Do you see how useful it is to recognize one's humanity in order to be prepared to keep the commandments and endure the trial? May we therefore always press on, since we cannot avoid toil or sorrow, then let us at least work and suffer in such a way that our toil is transformed into spiritual nourishment. Obedience, indeed, is better than sacrifice, and a patient man is better than a strong man. Disobedience can cause death, For we are all tested, and we all die on account of disobedience. And patience is ruin of our soul, for the Lord says, By your patience you will possess your souls. Wisdom is likewise necessary, as we said, for salvation. Similarly, not only do we lack obedience because of our disobedience, and we might lack patience because of our impatience, but if we also lack wisdom, then we perish in our stupidity. By this we know that we are only human, assigned to lives of work and suffering. There was a time when humans were created for work and meditation, enjoying action without suffering, and even without toil. I mean, of course, when humans were put in paradise to work and watch over God's garden. In fact, even in paradise, if not for the fall, humans would have advanced to a state where they could have enjoyed contemplation alone. So we are not in danger of falling from our present state, for unless we busy ourselves with rising higher, then we will all fall into hell. We certainly risk exchanging our present state for one of pure suffering, because in hell there is neither work nor reason, but only great suffering. How happy was the first man whose body was not corrupted. It never weighed down his soul. But how much more happy would Adam had been if he had arrived at that less active state, where he would have perceived wisdom more fully, more perfectly, loving the body freely, as though having no bodily needs. For this would have been the most beautiful arrangement, and so will it be when it will be. Nor should we despair when, in the end, the flesh seems to say to the soul, just as the soul now says to God, You have no need of my goods. It says, You will fill me with the joy of your countenance, there the fullness and satisfaction when your glory will appear. As for our expectations about the reformations of our bodies and the conformity to the Lord's glorious body, it will be from an abundant and overflowing measure. Happily, indeed, will we rejoice in the body's glorification, but not as our primary joy. Your wife, as it is written, like a fruitful vine on the side of your house, So will the flesh be honored, but according to its own measure, not dwelling in the middle of the divine home, but rather separately, not before the soul, but on the side. Your children, like olive shoots around your table, certainly our good works will not be lacking, but we must do our good deeds now, not then. As it is written, for their works follow them. Certainly then, let us rejoice and give thanks to God for these works that we have accomplished by God's grace. However, we will not give works first place, but seat them around the table, so to speak. As we now dwell in this physical world, we are dependent on our bodies. So this is not only the time for action, but also a time for suffering and even toil and sorrow for us all. This is unappetizing food for us, tasting like barley bread, It is as if a knight, once accustomed to luxury, offended the king and were forced to leave the palace. He must live his life as a lowly servant. The knight will have kept a servant's house as his hiding place and take strange food with his servant, exchanging royal delicacies for rustic porridge and a nobleman's bed for a servant's dung heap. Like that of a prophetic lamentation, those who were brought up in scarlet have embraced dung unless, of course, the prophet is actually deploring those noble creatures who forgot their own condition and deny their extreme wretchedness. They not only lower their standards on what they can tolerate, but even embrace as a great good that which they recently considered beyond the pale. So the prophet says about himself, I am a man seeing my poverty as being from the rod of God's indignation. Let us cry out under this burden, brothers. Let us despise our present affliction. Let each one of us continually give voice to our sincere complaint, shouting, Unhappy man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Now and then, let us desire to withdraw ourselves, to steal away from the difficulties for an hour, to examine our souls, to stir our hearts for what is their own right and what is more natural, to what is so much more pleasant for the human heart for this is what is meant by the exhortation be still and see that i am god for the vision is not for the eyes but for the heart when the lord says blessed are the pure in heart for they will see god this essential good of the heart has no need for the body services there is a more appropriate food for the soul concerning which the prophet says my heart has withered because i forgot to eat my bread most sensibly do we say talk is cheap especially compared to our deeds. For the tongue is far more nimble than the hand, and the tongue is quicker to speak than the hand is moved to strike. Besides both talking and acting, thinking is still easier, because in thought our soul speaks with its own mouth, sees with its own eyes, and works with its own hands. Even then the soul is wearied by its groans and cries of guilt upon its bed. If indeed our lives have come so close to hell, then this life is only a place of suffering for each and every one of us. So it seems that suffering occupies all of our actions. And what is more, action and suffering equally burden our thoughts. For isn't it true that we both toil and sorrow in our thoughts? How sad for the calf of Ephraim, who has learned to love the threshing floor, having grown accustomed to the yoke, having become a stranger to peace. When will I come and appear before the face of God? When will all these troubles cease? When will there no longer be any mourning or wailing or any sorrow or any toil? When will the abundance of God's home and unfailing torrent of divine pleasure inebriate my soul? When will the contemplation of that most tranquil light set free my entire soul? Little children, let us long for the courts of the Lord let us often sigh with yearning for those halls it is indeed our homeland let us at least breathe its fragrance and hail it from afar
4: you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Uh, today's sermon was narrated by stephen lockwood stephen lives in the united states with his wife and kids and he is the creator of the market k-12 which provides free marketing for christ-centered k-12 schools check it out at marketk 12com
2: you should check out stephen's stuff he actually has been helping us a little bit with our social media stuff he's been uh honestly giving some really great just photos and stuff like that he's got a lot of talent so if you're in that kind of a world you know that i would highly recommend go checking out the market quite k12.com steven definitely seems like he knows what he is doing thank you for listening to this episode we hope you enjoyed listening to this uh i mean 800 and something year old sermon pretty awesome that we get to do these kind of things and we are always appreciative of all the different ways people can help us and that Uh, if you have not ever signed up for patreon if you have not gone into that i would recommend hey check out our patreon we have some special episodes of the show we call them deep dives if you were listening to the part where we talked about bernard and the first crusade we did a whole crusade episode it was well over i mean i think it was two hours it was awesome there was so much stuff that happened we learned so much and it was definitely a fascinating episode you can listen to that you can listen to our episode on Joan of Arc and the salem witch trials that you can listen to you can listen to ethiopia deep dive part three which is out there for the patreon listeners you can listen to an ad free feed. And you also get some stuff from us. So the bookmark and all these cool things. So please go check out the Patreon uh, page. It's a way to enjoy you know, what we're doing here at Revive Studios. And most importantly, it definitely helps us to do uh, more and to continue growing the shows and continue to uh, get this edifying content out to more people. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.